Uh, the words will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. What an amazing time of worship that was. Uh, Shimona, thank you so much. I'm just standing there thinking it's amazing to just focus on the glory of Jesus with brothers and sisters in the Lord. What an amazing privilege that is. So, we're in Luke 15. Today is the parable of the prodigal son. It's probably quite a well-known parable, but uh, I think God is going to speak to us through this. I think there's some powerful things to take from this story. So let's just pray as we come to God's word. (coughs) Heavenly Father, you are not a distant God who is simply out there. You are the living God who is near who longs to draw near to his people, who wants to give us truth, who wants to build us up, who wants to work amongst us by his Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, our prayer this morning is, as we come to your words, speak to us. Give us ears that hear, give us eyes that see, make us receptive to your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, the prodigal son. Let me first say that The word prodigal itself tends to be a little bit misunderstood. And so because the parable is called the the parable of the prodigal son, and it's about a son who runs away and comes back, many people have the impression that the word prodigal means someone who goes away and comes back again. And actually the word prodigal means someone who spends without caution, someone who gives away recklessly almost. And so one of the things I want us to see as we go through this is that I'm actually going to propose that the parable of the prodigal son is not the best name for this parable. Instead, it is the parable of the prodigal God. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage and then kind of exegete it and expound it. I don't want us to just work through this story together. Because this is a story and things that would have grabbed the attention of the first century hearers may grab our attention. And the things which do grab our attention may not be the same things that would grab them. So what I want us to do is kind of work through the story, being receptive to what Jesus is doing and receptive to how the people would have responded to what he's doing. So let's first just get the context. So we've spent the last three weeks in this chapter, and this chapter begins with Jesus eating with Pharisees and tax collectors and and the like. Now, in in first century Jewish culture, who you ate with was a huge thing. They they realized that there's sinners and there's unclean people amongst us all the time, and we can't just separate from them. We can't go and start our own little colony. Some did. So we do have to live alongside them. So what we can do is put a fence around the meal table, because that is this kind of fellowship thing. You think about it in the Bible, when God eats with people, when God comes for instance, in Exodus, and shares a meal with people, it's like, these are my people. I'm in fellowship with them. And so there's very strict regulations about who you eat with and who you don't. And here Jesus is, sitting with known sinners and tax collectors. He's been with prostitutes. He's been with people that everyone else is putting to the side. And the question is, as they're talking amongst themselves, is this man receives sinners and eats with them? How can this be? In other words, Jesus, you have a a deficient understanding of the seriousness of sin. You say you're a man of God, you say you're a prophet, and yet you clearly don't understand sin. 
And Jesus responds by giving three parables, and they kind of build up in intensity. So the first one, which we looked at a few weeks ago, the, the hundred sheep, the lost sheep, he goes out and finds one. And the surprise at the end of that is, just as the shepherd rejoices when one is found, so too does God rejoice when a sinner comes to him. Next there was the parable of the lost coin. Ten silver coins, one of them's lost. Does not the woman search for them? In other words, if you've lost something that's yours, you go and get it back. And now Jesus comes to this parable. And he starts by saying, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Do you realize what he's saying there? Father, I know that when you die, I will receive part of our property as an inheritance. But I can't wait for you to die. So hurry up and give it to me already. In other words, he's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I'd rather have the land than you. Shaming his father, cutting off himself from the family, saying something which even today with a, a very different concept of shame and family ties, even that, if we heard a son say to his father, I wish you were dead, that would shock us. And then more shocking is the very next thing is that the father says, okay, if that's what you want, if you'd rather have the property than me, here you go. And he divides the property among them. I mean, already you can just see this prodigalness. This father is a father who gives at his own expense. Then says, not many days later, the son gathered all that he had. Now, that's not like he's, you know, he's, he's got his uh, red and spotty um, uh, rug and he's kind of putting all his possessions in and he's tying it off and putting it on a stick and, you know, walking off. This is a, this is a kind of a legal term. He's, he's selling up. He's gathered all his assets. Bear in mind, nowadays when we think of inheritance, we often think of just money. They didn't have a lot of money back then. That the, the inheritance, the capital was in the land. So the father divides up, this much land is yours. The son now is the manager of this land. And a few days later, to further insult his family, he sells that land. So he's told his father that he wishes he was dead. He separated himself from his family. And now he's sold the land that was his family's, that was his to look after and steward. I have a friend back in Devon called John, whose family has lived on their side of farm for 16 generations. When he inherits it in a few years' time, if he just put it straight on the market, that would be quite an insult to all the, the generational labor that has gone into that, even more so here. In fact, when you go into the Old Testament, we sang earlier about the year of Jubilee. What happens at the year of Jubilee? You give land back to the original family who owned it because there was this deep connection between the family and their land. And so just look at the... The, the direction that this son is taking himself into. He has removed all kind of claim to his family home. He doesn't even own the land anymore. He would be shamed by his society. He has dishonored his father. He sold his land. He now has no place 
among his people. And so he took a journey into a far country. Wouldn't be something voluntary. It wouldn't be like, the best place for me would be to leave everyone I know, love, and what I've grown up with. It's like he's been forced out because of his own decisions. And he went, and what do you do if you get to a strange place where you don't know anyone, you don't have the family connections? And this is a world where who you know is far more important than what you know. So he takes the money, he takes the inheritance that generations and generations have been building up and working on that he's just sold in a couple of days, and he says, this is what will get me friends. And so he stakes his trust in his possessions. He squandered his property in reckless living. Doesn't, probably doesn't mean that he's kind of going out and drinking till he's uh, blacked out every night. It doesn't probably mean that he's just buying everything he wants. It means that he's trying to lay foundations by being generous to everyone, hoping that someone will be generous back to him. Tit for tat. And then what he couldn't predict, when he had spent everything... He knew that was going to come. What he didn't know was going to come was a severe famine arose in that country. There's often kind of unpredictable events, which when they come in are like spanners in the works, aren't they? It's like we had all these plans before COVID, and then suddenly there was just one press meeting and the country's in lockdown. And it's like, okay, that's not something that could have been planned. Businesses close. Businesses which were soaring are now over. Churches which have just opened are now closed. So in the same way, he's got all these plans, but then a severe famine arises. Now when a famine comes, or when something like that comes, this is when you know who your friends are. And what friends have been won for him by this reliance on his possessions? What does he have to show for all this money that he's spent? For the fact that he's lost his family name, he has nothing. No one is there, and he begins to be in need. And so it says that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. I love the the phrase there. In the original language, it's it's that he glued himself to someone. In, uh, uh, I was in Italy a few years ago, and there was a guy who, when you take your trolley back to the trolleys after shopping, he would say, oh, can I take the trolley back for you? And the reason he would do that is because when he puts the trolley back, he gets to keep the euro. And this is a kind of thing that a lot of people do with, with in countries with not a, as a well-developed welfare system as what we have. People will kind of glue themselves to someone, a, a favor here, a favor there, and then gradually I'll be able to get a job. So he's, he's found someone, he's just doing little favors for them, hoping that this is going to turn into something more major. Now, bear in mind what Jesus' hearers would be thinking when Jesus says this next line. And he sent him into his fields to feed pigs. These are Jewish hearers. These are Pharisees, no less. These are people who, for them, the law is not an option. And in fact, just obeying the law by the letter, that's lightweight. So this man is among pigs. So not only has he dishonored his father, shamed his family, lost his family's wealth among the Gentiles, but is now unclean and among the pigs. It's as though he himself has become a pig Indeed, as we read in the next, ver- the next verse, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Look at the descent of this young man. He's now, in the story, essentially a pig. 
So the Pharisees are hearing, he is unclean, as unclean, as unclean. And no one gave him anything. Now just think, at this point, Jesus turns to the Pharisees. He says, so my, my theology of sin, my understanding of sin is not strong enough for you, is it? Okay, well let me tell you what sin is like. Sin is like a man who had security, who had the love and honor of his father, who had a place where he was at home and squandered it all and dishonored those who he came from, who harmed himself in the process and has now become like a pig and is unclean. Is that a serious enough understanding of sin for you? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you got it, fine. Jesus is not lightening how serious the claim is that they're making, that you eat with sinners. Yes, I am. They are sinners. They're not just good people who have gone the wrong way. Jesus really wants, and I think we need to keep this, the same thing that Jesus is maintaining. Because when, as we see in a minute, when we talk about compassion, the temptation is to downplay the seriousness of the problem and Jesus isn't willing to do that and so the Pharisees are there kind of yeah okay yeah we get it you understand sin I'm not finished says Jesus but he came to himself now I think we might read that as repentance you know he realizes the wrong of his ways he realizes what he's done and is powerless to do anything about it and so he wants to go and he wants to honor his father and he wants to come back to him and, and, and apologize. Now, I don't think that that's the case. I don't think this is repentance. I don't think this is from the heart because the very next thing it says is, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? You hear the point there? If I go and say the right things to my father, at least I'll have some food. This isn't repentance. This is a self-motivated I couldn't get food this way, so I'll get food this way. He's continuing to do the same thing that he's been doing, self-seeking. And so he comes up with this, this Loctite argument, right? Okay, so if I, if I need some food, then the best thing to do is to go back to my father's house, right? Okay, so now if I get to my father's house, the community there hate me. I've disowned myself from my father's company, my brother's not going to be a fan of me because I've sold half of our land. So what I'll need to do is I'll need to work out a way that I can endear myself back to my father. So he comes up with this, these three points, this Loctite argument. He comes and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. So I, I acknowledge that what I did wasn't great. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not looking for that honor back. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now again, I just want to clarify this because it's, I mean, the translation doesn't help. It's, it's kind of encourages us to read it as though what he's saying is you've got loads of servants. Let me be one of them. I think it's far more likely, I mean, a, a more literal translation would say something like, Turn me into a, a worker. In other words, what he's saying is kind of, can you write me a reference so I can go and become someone else's worker and I'll work back the money for you and then I'll come back. 
maybe not. Maybe it is simply I'll be one of your servants. But I, I think that that's more the force of what's going on here. Can you kind of give me a reference? Can you, in the next town over, I can become something, and then I can come back when I've done all the right things. When I've, when I can endear myself to you, can you welcome me back? Okay, so he's got this argument. Okay, so I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me into a hired worker. Okay. And he arose and he came to his father. And it says this. While he was still a long way off, I'm just going to pause there. Because the first parable was a sheep that was lost. The second parable is a coin that's lost. Now, there may be a temptation to read it as though the first one teaches us that Jesus has to go out and save you. The second one teaches us that God has to go out and save you. But the third one is saying, you need to make the right decision and come to God. That's not what Jesus is doing. The son is still a long way off. He is still lost. And his father saw him, and he felt compassion. As the son starts to walk closer, he sees his father there. Oh, goodness. You know when you've rehearsed something over and over in your head, and you're just waiting for the moment where you actually need to say it, and your heart's going faster, and you think, I'm going to... I'm going to get these words wrong. And then suddenly you see the person you're going to talk to. And, oh, goodness, okay. The, the pressure's really building now. And it says, he doesn't know what his father's thinking. He doesn't know that his father's felt compassion. He just knows that the last time he saw that very powerful man with lots of influence, he told him that he wanted him dead. He knows that that man represents a community of people who hate me, who have sent me from my home. And then it says the father ran and as the sun is coming closer, he's thinking, oh my goodness, what's he going to do? Is he going to throttle me? Is he going to kill me? And the father, it says, embraced him and kisses him. And you just imagine what the sun is feeling in that moment. And what the father is feeling as his son is now back. And so he starts to bring up those words again. I've rehearsed this. Come on, I can say it. Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. One. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then it just says... But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe, put it on him. Just notice what's going on there. He can't even get the third thing out because the father's just saying, just shut up. You're back. You don't need to make a defense for yourself. You don't need to make an argument for why I should bring you back. You're my son. And it, it never says the, the son lets go of him. 
the, the father lets go of him. It's as though the son is still holding on to him, shouting to his servants, bring the robe, get the ring. And you just stop talking. I love, I love this, this picture that the first thing he wants to do is put a robe on him. You think about it in the Bible, when someone clothes someone, what does that mean? Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are, uh, have just sinned and they've just fallen short of God's glory, it says, and God clothed them with animal skins. In Genesis 37, when, when Joseph is there among his brothers, how do you know that Joseph is the favorite of all his father's sons? Because his father made him a robe and clothed him in it. In the Song of Songs, it talks about, my beloved has put his covering over me. He's clothed me. In the same way, when Elijah commissions Elisha, he comes alongside him and he sees him and he knows this is the one God's called, so he puts a cloak on him. The symbol here is that when you cover someone, you are showing a symbol of love, whether that be marital love, forgiving love, filial love, commissioning love. You are showing that my affection rests on this person, that this coat is a, a material representation of what I, am, what I have for them inside. And so the first thing the father can say is, I don't need to hear about your apologies. Just be clothed with my love. Just be shown how I feel about you. I know you're filthy. You look like you've been feeding pigs. You stink. But just be covered with my love. And not only that, but put a ring on his finger. Think about what a ring is, you know, in the ancient world. These signet rings were these things that they would have to put their seal of approval at the bottom of letters. So when you see that signet, you know whose authority this comes from. So not only is this son kind of robed, but he's now given the, the authority of his father. You are my representative now. We don't need to talk about your past. We don't need to talk about where you've been. Let's talk about where you're going. And then not only that, but he then calls out, bring the fattened calf. You know, the thing that we reserve for the, the high festivals of the year. You know, imagine if in December you had some good news and your mom said, well, let's get the turkey out the freezer and cook it. No, that's for Christmas. This is bigger. You have come home, get the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this was, for this my son, yet you thought you lost that title, you thought you were no longer my son anymore, you thought you weren't in this family, well guess what, think again, my son has come home, he was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. You think about Jesus now turning to them. So, I'll show you mine, you showed me yours. That was my theology of sin. How's your theology of compassion? How do you understand the God that you claim to serve? You, you have a problem with me sitting and eating a meal with sinners. Well, let me tell you a story of a father who sat and ate a meal with sinners. And not only that, but in the first story, there was one out of 100 sheep. A man lost 
1% of what was his. In the second story, a woman lost one out of 10 coins. She lost 10% of what was hers. And now, this man has lost 50% of what was his. There is an increasing intensity to the loss. And in each, an increasing intensity of the joy when it is found. Do we hear what is being said here for us? And if not, let me make it absolutely crystal clear. We are not good enough to come near to God. We need a radical theology of sin. Sin is an offense to God. It deserves punishment. It is a tear in the very fabric of creation. And yet, and yet, Though we may try and ingratiate ourselves to God, though we may try and do the works, though we may say, well, if I can just earn the money back, then I can come back to God. When we come to God and we try and make our excuses, we're not greeted by someone who says, yes, that is the case. You have wronged me. You have done this. If you do this, we'll be good again. Instead, we come to a father who throws his arms around us And says, just shut up. The book of Zephaniah, one of my favorite books, if you hadn't already guessed. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 17. The first two chapters have been talking about the judgment that God is going to show to Israel for their their rightly deserved judgment for their sins. And then chapter 3 comes along and says, or instead I could completely bless you. And chapter 3 gets to this climax where it says, the Lord will save you. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. He will quiet you by his love. What an expression. The Lord will quiet you by his love. What does that mean? It means when the son is there trying to get the third thing out, trying to say, let me be one of your servants. He's just saying, just, just feel the embrace. And how often do we as Christians, rightly acknowledging that we are still sinners and still fall short of God's glory, think that we were sinners when we came to God. I knew I was unclean when I came to God, but now his continued love of me is dependent on me being right in his sight. Why would it change? We still smell like pigs. And God is still saying, shush. We don't need to come to before God and say, just let me work my way back to you. What we do need to come to God and say is, let me just receive what you are offering me. Let me just take the love which you have put on the table and not ask questions. Let me put that ring on my finger. Let me receive the robe and feel the warmth on my back and on my arms and just remind myself I am loved despite my every undeserving of it. And so now Jesus really kind of brings out the Pharisees' ire here. The older son's in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Something good's happened. There's not been anything good here for years. 
And he said, your brother has come. And your father has killed him? No, the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. The brother, hearing this, that his brother has has come back, that his father has shown this incredible compassion and love, because the one who wronged him is now safe and sound, the brother then is angry, and he refuses to come in. So his father came out to him, and he said, he entreated him to come in. He answered his father, look, let me tell you what's what. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, (laughs) this son of yours, when he came, who devoured your, pros- your property with prostitutes. I mean, just notice this. Where did it say that that's what the older son was doing? The younger son was doing, rather. The older son is thinking the very worst of what could have happened with his father's money. He was devouring your property with prostitutes, and you killed a fattened calf for him. Notice that the argument he's making is this. Compassion should be measured. If he came back, maybe open a tin of beans. But he did this, so you don't kill a fattened calf. Your compassion should be equal to how much they wronged you. And again, the father just quiets him down. You are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead. He says it again, was dead. Now, I just want to hover there, because the son wasn't dead. He was in a foreign country, losing the family's money among the Gentiles. And yet, he was so radically far from the father He was so radically far from what was on offer to him that he may as well have been dead. When you become a Christian, you are not making a good decision that will add some better prospects to your life. You are not adding in Jesus to an already moral life. Good people do not become Christians. Dead people are brought to life by the power of God. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. When you were dead in your sins and trespasses in the way you used to work according to the pattern of the prince of the power of the spirit of the air who was at work among the sons of disobedience. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. And then Paul uses that phrase, but God. But God. Amazing. Two words that change everything. But God, who is rich in mercy when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, has made you alive in Christ. Let me just kind of draw out what this means a little bit. Evangelism, the Alpha Course, talking to people about the gospel, is essentially walking into a morgue and convincing dead people to come back to life. So why do we do it? We do it because we believe in a God who is able to bring life back from the dead. 
who is able to raise the dead, who is able to revive the sinner's dead heart and make them alive. This brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. If you are a Christian this morning, you have been brought back from the dead. If you are a Christian this morning, you still smell like death and pigs. If you are a Christian this morning, then you have known the love and grace of a father who knows you more than you could possibly know. Who is willing to run and shame himself. I mean, think about this. The son's already ashamed. The son's already been cast out of the society. The father, on the other hand, still has his dignity. But when he sees that son, he puts his robes in his teeth and he runs like a child and immediately loses the respect of everyone. The father soils his own dignity to show love to his son. If you are a Christian, you have the love of God on you as a robe. And so my encouragement for you is feel its warmth. Don't just say to yourself, God's loved me. Reflect on these things. Think on these things. Pray to God, feeling the love and warmth that's on you whether you see it or not. Not only that, but if you are a Christian, you have the signet ring of the Most High on your finger. He has given you an authority to speak to the dead, to those things which are lifeless, which God is going to raise up. He's given you authority to say things and finish by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. What a powerful thing that is. If you are a Christian, then there is a celebration that is far more than you are worth going on in the heavenlies. It's as though the fattened calf is being killed daily. It's easy to say these things and to hear them and think, oh, that's nice. It's easy for these things to not transform the way that we live our lives. Because one of the things that marks pretty much every other culture before the coming of the gospel is a sense that the wrath and dread of the gods is upon me. And so all my life is constantly walking on eggshells to make sure that, that's, you know, that, I, that I say just good enough that they don't smite me at any moment. That is not true anymore because of the gospel. And we need to live like it. If you're listening and you're not a Christian, let me reiterate, you are far from God. But that offer extends to you. And when you come to Jesus, what you'll find in that moment is that it was not actually you who came, it was you who were sought. And that robe has been put on you longer than you realized. And for those of us who know and love the Lord, who perhaps have become used to the things of God, who have become used to the routine of Sunday morning church, home group in the week, Sunday morning church, home group in the week, this is a, a warning to never be like that older brother who sees the joy that is on offer when the gospel is proclaimed and to complain that we're not receiving it. The joy of the Lord is on offer for all. 
So let's walk into the banquet. The father entreats him to come in. Won't you come in and share with us? And he has hardened his heart and said, no, I won't. So the offer is this. Come on in. Join in. Join in the feast. Let's pray. God, our most merciful father. Lord, what words can we possibly say to express the gravity of what is on offer in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Life from the dead, honor to the shamed, love to the loveless. Lord, kill in us that tendency to work ourselves back to you. Kill in us that tendency to make ourselves right before we appear before you. And kindle in us love, uh, the love of the Father. Kindle in us the knowledge of our adoption as sons and daughters. Lord, may we ever just have Christ before us. Such good news. So Lord, increase our praises, we pray. Increase our love. Increase our joy, increase our passion, and may we know that warmth of the robe of the Father that has been placed on our shoulders. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Shimon, I would love it if you would come and lead us in worship.